0: RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio.
1: You're listening to Reality Check Radio and this is the Chantal Baker Show. What we're going to talk about today is quite possibly the biggest story that you've never heard of. And that's because our media in this country just doesn't want to talk about it. But trust me, people are talking about this all over the world. And the story I'm referring to is the demise of the US dollar as the world's reserve currency and the huge implications that such an event will bring. It means a fall from grace for a currency that has been used for buying and selling oil since the 1970s. It means uncertainty for the nations and populations who aligned themselves with the US system. And it means the rise of the BRICS nations. and the beginning of an era of digital currencies that even the International Monetary Fund are mystified by, What all of this means is that our way of life is potentially about to change forever. And for some reason, no one in this country wants to talk about it. No one wants to talk about how this financial crisis that is driving all of this is now bigger than the financial crisis of 2008. No one wants to talk about having fewer banks and bigger banks is going to limit our ability to live in freedom. And no one wants to talk about how our present government has doubled our national debt in just three years, and has now left us without any choice but to accept whatever it is that is coming our way like a storm cloud. Like I said, this is the biggest story that you've probably never heard about. But today, Alistair and I are going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what's driving the inflation that's crippling the post-COVID world. We're going to talk about the rise of the digital financial complex. We're going to talk about CBDCs and what they mean for your future. And most importantly, we're going to talk about what we can all do to be ready for it when it comes. Because if we don't, there's no one in the mainstream media that will. All right, Alistair, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of The Chantel Baker Show. Thank you, my wonderful producer and co-host for joining me and helping us all to become more educated every single week.
0: Yeah, we've had a week off, so it's good to be back into it. And um, today, this this story is massive, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about doing this show for uh, for a number of weeks now, haven't we?
1: Yeah, it's been in place for. I was. Is it been like a month, a month and a half that we've been planning this show? Um, and when I say we, I mean predominantly you and your phenomenal investigative work, and and I kind of like to read everything we've been going through and interview people, but you've been doing so many of the hard yards. Um, and for anyone that missed us last week, sorry, but not really sorry because I was getting married, so. We had a few important things to do over the weekend, but now we're all back and it was awesome having so many of my lovely friends and actually people that I met in Wellington last year, such as Alistair and Aggie, um, throughout various events come to our wedding, which was beautiful and lovely and just had a small, a small portion of some of our most loved friends. So yeah, thanks for coming. It was great.
0: And I'm, I'm just relieved that we can finally talk about it.
1: Yeah, because I kept it all a secret for so long. <laughs> Had to be undercover.
0: It was a beautiful wedding, probably uh, the, the best wedding I've ever been to. It was absolutely beautiful with the uh, the, the weather that was down there and and the autumn colors and everything it was absolutely beautiful and we're we're all so happy for you guys
1: well thanks Alistair autumn in Arrowtown stunning and it only got pulled off due to my amazing family because to be fair I was not overly (laughs) organized which some people found out on the day it was just a relaxed fun um easygoing awesome day and we loved it so now that we've done the lighthearted, lovely bits, should we get into the intensity of centralized digital currency and the potential demise of the world?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we shouldn't Wonderful. laugh, but, but it's a massive <laughs> no. topic. And I think you brought this up um, a couple of months, mu- or well, probably about a month ago. And we started working on doing this story, and it really is um, like you said in the introduction. It's a massive story, but nobody seems to want to talk about it, especially in this country. You know, you you do searches on the internet for stories within our mainstream media, and if you do find something, it's very very shallow. There's there's really nothing much said, um, and I do think that it's kind of a reflection of the way that it's being presented overseas, and You know, when we started doing the show, we talked about how we wanted to talk about stories that the mainstream media in New Zealand are not talking about. We wanted to bring these stories to New Zealanders, um, to the ears of our um, reality check radio audience. And this is one that really does fit that bill. And I also noticed the way that on the left-hand side of the spectrum and the right-hand side of the political spectrum, there's two very different ways that people are approaching it aren't they and um you know the first one that i remember looking at and really hearing the right wing side was um the late, great Tucker Carlson. Well, not really late.
1: We're not late, great. Right? He's not died. He's just off here on Fox. <laughs> he's just he's gone. Off Fox. He's on Fox. He's been inundated with offers from other people, but he's currently not on Fox. But let's not pretend he died.
0: <laughs> no, he's not dead.
1: Poor Tucker. He's like, what? <laughs> what happened?
0: But, you know, he broke it down really, really well. On April the 5th, he did a monologue. And uh, we'll play a little bit of it now and give you a little bit of a taste
2: of what he had to say. For nearly 80 years since the end of the Second World War, the U.S. dollar has effectively been the currency of the world for our entire lifetimes. Because there were so many U.S. dollars in circulation outside of the country, the cost of borrowing money inside the country remained artificially low. And that's one of the reasons that in this country, America, middle-class people could buy their own homes. But what would happen if it ended? You don't even really want to think about that. But we started to worry about it about a year ago, really the day the Russian military rolled over the Ukrainian border. In response to Russia's war with Ukraine, the U.S. froze the dollar reserves of Russia's central bank. To be clear, these were not American assets. These were dollars owned by the Russian central bank and the Russian people. The seizure was intended to cause bank runs and collapse Russia's credit system. It didn't work. Instead, it exposed the Biden administration's willingness to violate the trillions of dollars that foreigners rightfully own. Smart foreigners, and there are some, started to dump the U.S. dollar. Why? Because the U.S. dollar was no longer a reliable store of value. And as a result, dollars began to look much less appealing to the rest of the world. And so de-dollarization began. So Russia announced it will conduct business in Asia, Africa, and Latin America in Chinese currency. Brazil, which has a brand new government, announced it will do the same thing. Pakistan is doing the same thing. That's a longtime U.S. ally. India and Malaysia, two of the biggest economies in the world, announced they'll be settling their trade in their own currencies, not the dollar. And you
0: can hear from that little clip right there that um, he's he's really worried about what is actually going on. He's he's looking at his country right now and he's wondering, you know, what is what is coming? And he lays a lot of the blame at the moment on the war with Ukraine, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he does. And it's... I mean, it's it's an interesting mix of the war with Ukraine and the shuffling of funds from countries with strong democracies to countries with pretty unstable democracies and a lack of accountability. And that's adding to the inflation that we're seeing in each country, but it's also making partners like China and Russia question why they're trading in the US dollar and really start to push these countries together and create alliances that previously were unheard of And so this is the troubling question. If we've got countries, big oil countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and pulling together with India, with Russia, with China, it's scary. And it's really scary. It's going, okay, at the moment, and I think when I've been going through all of this, a lot of it kind of boils down to people think it won't happen, so therefore they're ignoring the reality that it could happen. Because they don't want it to happen Because it's a lot easier to pretend that it won't happen But GDP, the GDP of this alliance of the BRICS countries is growing The GDP of the US is struggling And so when we look at this And you look at what is going to be a stable economy moving forward You can say unquestionably the United States Because they're trusted Or you could say that that trust is now starting to move Towards countries that seemingly Have been a little bit more honest with each other
0: yeah, and the other thing, too, that strikes me when you talk about this subject is the effect of inflation. Now, we all know that all over the, especially the Western world at the moment, we're, we're struggling under cost of living crises and inflation and so on. And then you look at this idea of all these other countries stopping using the U.S. dollar. That'll mean that, as Tucker points out, that those U.S. dollars come flooding back into, into the U.S.A., and what happens then is, as he points out, that there's a potential for Weimar-style hyperinflation. And the Weimar-style hyperinflation, that refers to after the First World War, between the First and Second World Wars, when, the, um, when Germany, paying for a war, the, a pointless war, um, like the U.S. is now, led to massive hyperinflation, where people were taking... I've seen photographs of people with wheelbarrows with piles uh, piled high with money, paper money to go and buy a loaf of bread and so on. Those were in my textbooks when I went to high school. Wow. Um, and that's what he's talking about. That's what he's worried about the hyperinflation that could be caused because of all of this. And so then when you, it's not just Tucker that's talking about that, there was also another. Um, another show on Fox News on March the 28th, where um, a woman called Monica Crowley, a former assistant treasury secretary spoke. And um, she was, she went really hardcore on this to the point where it was almost getting a little bit hysterical. And that's coming from somebody who, from myself, who actually I understand what she's getting worried about, but she was really getting quite, uh, quite over the top with her
3: worries about it, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, she was. And I'll get you guys to have a listen so you guys can follow what we're talking about. Have a listen to this.
3: And it's really hard to overstate exactly how catastrophic the abandonment of the US dollar would be. The the world's reserve currency being that uh, having that status has been a real privilege, but we've abused the privilege by wholly reckless monetary and fiscal policies over many years, certainly over the last couple of years, which has really devalued the dollar. Because of all of these things, we've got America's enemies led by China forming a new economic bloc. And all it would take at this point now, because we're at this pivotal moment, Will, Mm -hmm. is for Saudi Arabia, who has indicated that they're open to this, to say, you know what, we're going to be open to considering other currencies to trade in oil. If that were to happen, there would be a complete implosion of the global economic system, but certainly the American economic system. And if that were to happen, you'd be looking at sky high inflation, just raging Weimar Republic kind of inflation. If you think inflation is bad now, just wait. And I'll tell you, they're setting it up so that they can then come to the rescue by introducing central bank digital currencies. If they were to do that and the United States already has a pilot program, that means the loss of your individual economic freedom because the government will have total access and control of everything you buy and sell and the ability to turn it off like that.
0: And so right at the end there, that's where she really, she's. it's like she's trying to get everything out. It's going to mean raging inflation so much worse than anything we've ever experienced. This is what she's talking about. And then, of course, what she brings in then is the specter of the CBDCs, isn't it? And this is something... That we've been talking about, I think a lot of people, especially in the freedom um, movement, have been talking about for quite some time, isn't it? And this is maybe how it's actually going to happen.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. And it is it is a scary development because the GDP of these BRICS nations has surpassed that of the G7, so it's still sitting, I think, at around 32 percent um, worldwide GDP. So it's not high enough yet to take over, but the possibilities are sitting there. And then you have to look at the second component to that, which is China has huge invested interests in many countries' infrastructure and in their, i uh, um, sorry, in their exports and in the imports. So when we take that into question alongside the BRICS alignment, you can you start to see a big picture of that. This is a possibility. As scary as it is, this is a possibility that it could shift to trading, which would actually mean people would be trading in the Chinese Yuan.
0: But then the bewildering thing about all of that is that I think you're right. You know, it is a possibility. Why aren't we talking about it at the very least? I think we've got to also reiterate here, we don't actually know what's going to happen. We're not we're not future uh, soothsayers or anything like that. We, we don't have crystal balls. And this is all just um, looking at all the evidence and trying to figure it out, um, with the aid of some free speech, I suppose. But when you look at the left-hand side of the spectrum, they, they, they don't want to talk about it at all to the point where, um, I found this really great story from the New York Times, which is an opinion piece by a man named, uh, Paul Krugman, Paul Krugman. And he's a well-respected economist. He's a professor at um, the University of New York and at Princeton. Um, He's a Nobel Memorial Prize winner for the economic sciences for his work on international trade theory. He's taught at Yale, Stanford, MIT. This is a guy who must know his stuff. And his opinion piece talking about all of this is basically saying, well, what's everyone going on about? why am, and i quote here why then are people making such a big deal over the possible end of dollar dominance the answer i believe is that global currency issues come across as glamorous and mysterious so people imagine that they must be important he's making fun of people who talk about this i don't understand why why isn't there why isn't there even a discussion and yes some people do like to talk about them because they think it makes them sound sophisticated You have to actually work with the numbers to appreciate how little is really at stake. Do you think there's really that little at stake that we shouldn't talk about it, Chantelle?
1: I find this interesting because I've talked to a number of different kind of financial experts about this topic. And they all come down to a similar standpoint where they think that... If there was to be like a major centralised digital currency and that was going to be rolled out worldwide, that could cause problems, right? But they don't think that that's really much of a possibility and they do see um, the current petrodollar system backed against the United States as a relatively stable one that is backed with a democracy that's relatively stable and so they don't see the kind of... Separation that we're talking about under BRICS, we they don't they're not as concerned about that separation and the picture at all is shifting as some other people are that are reading what's going on and looking at what's going on and it's interesting because Brazil has been a really outspoken advocate of BRICS. Um, President Lula, 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 he's quite a big fan of the World Economic Forum and is quite close with those guys. So I think that there's it's it's a thing to be wary of and to question. Not saying it's the end of the world, anything like that, but it is worth talking about and questioning because I think that sometimes the financial experts that I've talked to as well are very hopeful and that this won't be a disruption because they invest, they work in this industry, they don't want there to be a, a disruption. Personally, it would cost them. And I think we can all be very cautious when it comes to anything that could affect our future. But then we've got to look at sometimes a wide picture and go, is this a possibility? How soon could it be a possibility? What would it look like if it started to become a possibility? And who would be in charge of this? Uh, And my real concern with this is it looks like China would be the one that would be in charge of this. Yeah.
0: And that's probably the biggest fear. But I think what we've also found is when we talk to people about it, that there's a wide agreement that There's no way that that's going to happen because who's going to go along with the world's greatest authoritarian regime outside North Korea. Um, but I guess there's a little bit of faith that goes into that. Um, I think maybe we should also step back a little bit here and just explain to everybody about what has made this, um, where we're getting to with the petrodollar, um how the the petrodollar has contributed to this and then why the BRICS nations are so important to that conversation right um the petrodollar began in the 1970s um when the, the U.S. dollar, President Nixon pr- took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, n- didn't he? And when he went to talk, and then he went off, over to yeah. talk to Saudi Arabia, and he convinced Saudi Arabia that they were going to start buying and selling oil in U.S. dollars. And they were, Saudi Arabia went and convinced op- the other OPEC nations to do the same. And so that made it what we call the petrodollar. And that has sort of buoyed the, uh, the U.S. dollar without having the gold standard to hold it up it's it's boosted the US dollar for all of those years. And so, of course, that has um, created a, a massive um, reliance on the US dollar all around the world. Now, of course, what's happening now is that people are starting to talk about not using the US dollar to buy, buy and sell oil, aren't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is where the BRICS alignment comes in. So they're actually talking, and the BRICS agreement is talking about going back to a gold-backed currency, and then going back to a potential petrodollar based in the Chinese yuan. And so this is the interesting thing. It's a massive swing to the other side.
0: Nobody knows yet exactly how it's going to be. They're just doing amongst some of those nations, they are they they they're doing agreements where Okay, we're gonna pay for it in the one in this circumstance. And then India and Malaysia, for instance, they're saying we're gonna we're gonna pay for things in our own currencies. So it's all a little a little bit of a mishmash at the moment the reason that the yuan gets talked about in the digital currency space is because that's the only one that actually is actually running as a cbdc at the moment
1: yeah and they've had that system down for a number of years as well alongside their digital identity system and so this is the interesting question if these countries align and go with brics and if they do decide to do the chinese centralized digital currency are we going to see a ramp up of more authoritarian rule in those countries that do decide to go with this Chinese CBDC and will they start to step up on the on their digital identity as well?
0: The other part of that is that if all of these different countries are starting to use all of their, their, their different currencies to pay for all sorts of different things, and it is, it's, we've got to stress here that it's ongoing every day we see new stories coming out about this, and so there's no way that we actually know exactly how it's happening right now. We hear about Russia and tri- China doing a deal to to um, to do trade in the the yuan. We have, I think. Um, China and Brazil talking about the same thing, but then we have India and Malaysia talking about using their own their own currencies and so on. So it is really a little bit of a mishmash everywhere. There's no way that we can we can see everything at this stage.
1: It's an evolve it's an evolving cycle. Yeah. It's it's evolving currently daily. So you can't you can't completely predict, but you can you can estimate what might happen and you can discuss around what might happen and then look at your opportunities as an individual if this were to happen and some of the key signals to look out for.
0: And in 2020, the Journal of International Economics came out with a report on, on what were the possibilities that could happen with this, and they discussed four potential future monetary outcomes. One is the The first one was just the status quo, the continued dollar hegemony. So that means, you know, we're going to keep the U.S. dollar and um, it may go through some rough waters, but we're going to stay with it. The second idea was competing monetary blocks. So that's what we're talking about now. Countries like China, Iran, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and India are already considering shifting their base value of their exports to their own currencies. So Russia and China are talking about using the yuan and, and so on and so forth. The third outcome is a new international monetary federation, which that's, I think, when we're starting to talk about CBDCs. Maybe it's it's held together by an organization such that, such as the International Monetary Fund. And then, of course, the fourth outcome is cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. And when you look at all of these, I mean, you've got to think about what's going to be best for people that are looking to have centralized systems and centralized control and power. Now when you've got decentralized systems such as Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that are loosely held those ones are not as appealing for governments especially for governments that are looking to uh, create agreements worldwide because again it's more independent it's decentralized what we have seen coming out of the world economic forum the UN the WHO everybody keeps talking on about centralized systems and cent- and when I've been looking I think it was Rishi Sunak the current British prime minister back a few years ago maybe about two years ago he was talking I believe it was at the G7 may have been the G20 and he started talking about his push for centralised digital CBDCs and how they could be used as tokens so instead of having free money to do with what you want the government will essentially programme your money so that your, your money is all digital and it's programmed so that you can only spend it on specific things so that takes away any freedom that you have to spend your own money the way that you wish. And this is the really big concern that we're talking about. It's these countries, and, and Britain, by the way, is not part of BRICS at all yet. <laughs> they're not part of BRICS. They would, you'd say they're definitely a lot more aligned with the U.S., But these countries are talking about their want and their desire for a centralised digital currency and they keep talking when they go to the G7 and the G20, when they go to the World Economic Forum, they're talking about how they want further centralised systems to be rolled out around the world. So this is concerning because I am a big advocate of decentralised systems. I think centralised systems are the reason that we have skyrocketing inflation and so many issues in the first place. So this is what we're trying to discuss. It's what would they do how long would it take them to do it?
0: Yeah. And it's kind of an echo of the last three years. You know, we it's, it's like we're not supposed to be talking about it. For instance, that New York Times opinion piece that I just quoted before, I mean, to be sort of ridiculed for trying to sound sophisticated. I, I think it's a little bit ridiculous when people's basic freedoms are, are, are under the microscope. And um, one of the problems is, is that it's potentially gonna be run by an organization like the IMF, which a lot of us don't really understand how they work and what they what they do.
1: It's an interesting one because I think laughing at people that are trying to question what's going on has been commonplace over the last few years. But unfortunately, for people that have looked into some of these systems, Typically, what you find is that everyone is trusting a larger organization to think and, and they say, well, they know what they're talking about. And then these larger organizations are going out there and saying, well, this is what we do. And everyone is snapping that up and they're going along with it. And so you end up with actually a centralized point of information that is telling all of these other um, tens of thousands of organizations what to do. So rather than them thinking independently on their own, they actually go back to the one perceivedly more important think tank that tells them how things are going to run. Um, and People still get concerned about digging into things or questioning them because they don't want to be asking questions that others may think are stupid. Um, But I love asking questions that other people may think are stupid. So I've interviewed someone very interesting, and we're going to have him on now. His name is Ernst Wolf. Ernst Wolf, thank you so much for joining me here. It means the absolute world to have you on. You're the author of an incredible book, Pillaging the World, the History of the IMF. And this is a big topic that New Zealanders haven't touched on very much with our current legacy media. So we appreciate you giving me your time. And I am going to ask you a whole lot of questions because this is a topic I'm really fascinated to learn more about from you.
4: Well, thanks for having me.
1: So would you mind us beginning with you giving me a brief outline of the IMF and what the current place is around the world?
4: So we're living under a financial system that was uh, brought to life in 1944 after the Second World War. Um, the Second World War ended with the U.S. being uh, the first superpower in the world and the U.S. banks uh, gaining more power than ever before. So what they did is they introduced the financial system that was built around the dollar. And there was one organization that they founded in 1946, that was to survey uh, uh, the process of uh, inaugurating this new system, and that was the IMF. So the IMF started out as uh, an organization uh, which was uh, actually uh, just there to survey this new system. But then uh, things developed, and uh, after the 60s, the 1960s, we had all these uprisings in Africa and all over the world. And then uh, these governments, like those those uh, um, freedom uh, fighters in Africa, they were very close to the Soviet union. Uh, but and and the Western banks were not willing to give them uh, any money. So the IMF moved in and they managed to to uh, finance these uh, uh, governments. but of of course, they uh, uh, tied their financing to certain conditions. So they actually uh, uh, built a web of debt around these countries so these countries, ever since the 1960s, were dependent on the IMF. The IMF now is the most uh, powerful uh, organization, financial organization in the world. It's active in all 200 countries in this world and there's no other organization that has as much power as the IMF, if you speak uh, on an international basis.
1: Mm. And for people that don't know at home the IMF is the International Monetary Fund as well how do the IMF go about first finding finding a target and then trapping that target into the long term and the longevity of their system
4: well they're just waiting they're just waiting for for a, a country to get into trouble because i mean uh, we live in a time where debt is is immense uh, i mean total debt in this world nowadays uh, i mean uh, household debt plus uh, corporate debt plus state debt is about 300 trillion so uh, a lot of uh, countries and a lot of governments find themselves in trouble uh, serving this debt and so they have to uh, borrow money and they don't they don't borrow this money from private banks they go to the IMF and the IMF actually uh, sort of helps them out but actually they tie this help to certain conditions like uh, they have to uh, cut down social uh, expenditures and so on. So it's usually that the the people have to pay the price for uh, the loans that the government gets.
1: Mm. And with the petrodollar, if we can now move to the petrodollar, can you explain to people listening at home (laughs) what the petrodollar is and how it affects them?
4: Well the petrodollar is a very uh, clever design. It was designed by Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon in the 1970s. See Uh, The financial system worked pretty well until about um, the mid-70s. The dollar in 1944 at the conference of Bretton Woods was made the world's first lead currency. All other uh, currencies were tied to the dollar and the dollar was tied to gold. But that ended in 1971 because uh, uh, the world was flooded with dollars but the amount of uh, gold was kind of stable. So there was a big discrepancy between the amount of dollars in the world and the amount of gold. So a lot of investors were asking for their gold. So uh, kind of a gold run began. Then the French government asked for their gold to be repatriated to Europe. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, American government reacted in August 1971 by depegging the dollar from gold. And then two years later, all other currencies were depegged from the dollar. So that was the end of the dollar as a lead currency. But the Americans were very clever. Then they were they tried to think about a new uh, uh, system or uh, s- some kind of trick in order to to regain this position as the lead currency. And uh, actually, Henry Kissinger went to Saudi Arabia and he convinced the Saudi Arabians to uh, uh, to trade oil only in dollars from then on and to. Uh, Uh, convince OPEC, that is the organization of petrol exporting countries, to to only trade uh, uh, oil in dollars from then on. So that is the the beginning of the petrodollar. So the dollar was tied to gold until 1971, and after 1974, the dollar was tied to to oil. And oil is the most widely uh, um, traded commodity in this world, so that saved the the, uh, dominance of the dollar.
1: Can you next explain to us what BRICS is and the danger that's coming out with BRICS now moving to gold-backed currency and then also moving to now trade oil under the Chinese yuan?
4: Well, the BRICS, that is Brazil, Russia, um, India, uh, China and South Africa. And These uh, countries are uh, not really very friendly with the US, but I think that's uh, that's just uh, one of those conflicts going on. I think there's a much uh, a bigger force in the background See, everybody is talking these days about a multipolar world. We had this unipolar world where the uh, United States was the number one in the world, and they're talking about the world moving to a uh, a multipolar world. I don't think that's the case. I think we're moving into the most unipolar world of all times. Because actually, when you want to know where this world is going, you don't have to look at the governments, because the governments are nothing but puppets. The, The politicians are nothing but puppets. The real big force in this world, that's the digital financial complex that is comprised of the big financial corporations. Uh, At the top you will find BlackRock and Vanguard. Vanguard is the top shareholder of BlackRock. Uh, These two are are very dominant in the uh, financial sector and in the uh, digital sector, you will find the big IT corporations that is Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft and Meta. These seven companies—they are the—that's uh, th- the biggest cartel that ever existed in this world, and they are the ones that are, are actually governing our world. Just take a look at the uh, Corona crisis that is behind us. We had about—we uh, have about 200 governments in this world, and about 195 were moving in the same direction. So there must be a force in the background that forces these governments to do what they're doing. And actually, this this power in the background, that is uh, the digital financial complex. I mean, BlackRock is able to move any market in the world in any direction, uh, and they can uh, make any government in this world fail within a few days. So they're all dependent on these people. So that's the real true power in the background.
1: So do you not think that China is going to become a real threat to countries such as the States or us here in New Zealand with their new announcement of BRICS and with a shift to a digital currency through them? Do you not think that that will be an issue for our local economies?
4: Oh, of course, of course. I mean, China is the, the most horrible dictatorship in this world. I mean, China, they have taken over all these uh, centralized structures from Maoism um, and they have this horrible system. They have uh, drone surveillance. They... they uh, have a social credit score system, they have facial recognition. I mean, that's a dystopian nightmare. And uh, because they that that is such a dictatorship, they're the only country in the world that has been able to launch a new kind of currency. And that is uh, the CBDCs, the Central Bank Digital Currency. Um, I think that is the big plan that every, every government in this world is pursuing. Like right now you have 114 governments in this world representing of GDP that are working on CBDCs. The old system, the old financial system is doomed. And they're they're trying to implement a new system. The new system is not ready yet. It's not ready for launching right now. So we're we're living in it through a transitional phase. And they're using this transitional phase in order to pillage the, the world. That's what they're doing they're not caring about tomorrow they're just caring about uh, uh, squeezing the world like a lemon at the moment and getting most out of it because they know this system is doomed this system will end sometime but they're facing a big problem and that big problem is the introduction of this new currency they they were able to to hand out 260 million wallets on mobile phones in china but that was only uh only possible because china is such a dictatorship I mean in the west we have all these parliamentary democracies and although a lot of our rights have been abolished during the past uh, 3 years uh, people still uh, uh, I, the, the governments are not able to to uh, instill certain things on the people and to impose certain things on the people without the people consenting um what what they what they're facing now is that a lot of people will not accept this new currency because that's one thing we have to talk about what is a central bank digital currency uh, the plan is, first of all, it's a two-tier money. It's a two-class um, uh, uh, money. Uh, there will be retail CBDCs and then there will be wholesale CBDCs. Wholesale CBDCs will be traded between uh, the central banks and the big financial institutions like the big banks, the insurance companies, the hedge funds. And then there will be a, a retail CBDC, which is uh, designed for people like you and me and for small enterprises. That's the, uh, the, the two-class system. But what does it mean? What's the aim of all of this? The aim is to have all of us accept only one account with the central bank. Right now we have uh, either one or several accounts with the commercial banks. They don't want that. They want to take uh, 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 handing out loans away from the commercial banks and give it uh, to the central bank only. So the aim is to have us all have only one account with the central bank and that will give the central bank the power to assign us uh, individual tax rates, individual interest rates, they will be able to uh, punish us financially. They will be able to uh, tie the money to uh, 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 geographical limitations. They can tell us yeah, you can only spend your money within a radius of fifty kilometers or eighty kilometers. Uh, the money will have might have an expiration date. The money might have uh, they they uh, had a test on that in China with an expiration date of six days, so the uh, value, the money was valuable for six days, and then it expired. And also they will be able to tie to tie this uh, new money to a social credits uh, system like in China. So it will mean the total abolition of democracy and will mean the end of uh, freedom, liberty, and uh, uh, our private sphere. And I think people are not ready to to accept that. So what they're doing right now is they're they're just crushing society, they're crushing the economy, they're crushing everything in order to get people into real big trouble, in order to impose the system on them afterwards.
1: What do you think are some steps that people can take to try and prevent this from happening? Do you think there's anything they can do or do you just think this is part of that transitionary phase where it doesn't matter... How much people protest or what they do. This is just simply a, ma- a matter of time until this eventually does go through because as we've seen around the world, yes people do stand up and they get upset as we've seen the last couple of years, but there comes to a point where people comply.
4: Well I think we're facing a phase of, of, of civil wars all over the world. I mean take a look at France. Uh, people have been protesting in France now for six weeks. I mean, uh, take a look at Paris, where the garbage is all all over in the streets because they they haven't collected the garbage for six weeks now. Um, I mean, there's there's kind of a a civil war going on in France already, and they have big protests in Spain. They have protests all over the place. But until now, I mean, the powers that be are still in power, but I think they're, they're, they're facing very hard times. And the most important thing is that a lot of people go along with this agenda because they don't understand it. They don't understand what's going on in the background. I mean, just uh, take a look at how many people know what CBDCs are, uh, uh, what that abbreviation means, uh, uh, what implications it has. So the most important thing to me is to to tell people what's going on in the background and to inform people about the agenda in the background. And there's uh, several organizations that are important for that. One of the uh, organizations that's very important is the World Economic Forum because they are the ones who who are uh, actually training politicians and corporate leaders and they have been doing that for 30 years. All the big politicians in the world now are associated with the World Economic Forum. So it's more important to know what the World Economic Forum does than to know what uh, each individual government does.
1: So do you, what kind of impact do you think the World Economic Forum is going to have with the new BRICS alignment? Do you think they will have much of an impact with how that is rolled out?
4: No, it's uh, that's that's just uh, kind of uh, they're trying to lead people uh, to, to believe that that is very important. But that's not very important because uh, one, one thing that most people do not know is that the Chinese Communist Party is a close associate of the digital financial complex in, in the U.S. I mean, they're working together behind the scenes. It was about two years ago that uh, China announced that uh, their e yuan, their uh, CBDC, might be launched on the uh, network of either Ethereum or of the on the network of DM. Diem is the follow-up to Libra, and Libra is the private uh, currency ushered by Mark Zuckerberg. So they they're working together. They're just distracting people. You know, all these confl- conflicts are just there to distract people to make them uh, and uh, to, to make them unable to see what's really going on the thing that's really going on is we're we're in a process of the complete takeover of the whole world by the digital uh, financial complex and one one thing that's also important uh, aside from all the things that are happening in the digital uh, sphere or in the financial sphere is what's happening in the digital sphere with the uh, development of artificial intelligence i mean artificial intelligence means that a lot lots of jobs will be lost uh, within the next few months and years uh, it's going to be not millions, it's going to be tens and hundreds of millions of jobs are going to be lost. So chaos will will be complete within like two, three, four, five years. And then I think then that's the moment where they will uh, launch uh, CBDCs on a large scale. So uh, we're we're into this thing. And, and right now it looks as if they were winning. But I don't think they will win in the end because... Uh, It is uh, absolutely anti-human what they're preparing for us. It uh, it will deprive us of all our rights, of all our democratic rights. And I don't think that people will go along with that uh, in the long run. It might be that they will be successful for another half a year, a year, or maybe even two years. But I think a lot of people are waking up now and a a lot of people will wake up in the future.
1: Do you think that will be an issue though? Because even if people do wake up, even if they do start to realise that there are huge problems going on behind the scenes, here in New Zealand, they did disarm the nation. So we had the Christchurch call, which was when our Prime Minister decided that they were going to take all the guns off the legally owned firearms off the people with licences. And so they did that after there was a gunman here that wasn't even from our country. So it seems really bizarre that they then choose to take all the guns off people that legally owned them, but yet we've got gangs that are running rife with guns. Guns. and so it seems by stripping the population of guns it simply makes it easier for governments to make drastic decisions that then the people are are in, insufficiently equipped to do anything about it. How can you fight back a power that has so much more military the military oppos- opposition and gain than what you do?
4: Well the thing is that all these measures don't show that they're they're so strong that it shows that they're so weak. I mean they have to do this in order to stay in power. They have to disarm people in order to stay out and in power because they're afraid that these arms will be uh, pointed at them at some time. But uh, uh, this, all, this whole agenda can only work as long as people go along with it. And when people start not going along with it anymore, and see if once they they have introduced these CBDCs, I mean. People can resort to, to uh, uh, precious metals, for example. People can start paying uh, with silver coins again. And I think that's go- that's actually what's going to happen. I think there will be a point when people will be fed up with all this digital uh, crap and they will say, well, we don't want our mobile phones anymore. We don't want our computers anymore. I think there will be some, some really, really big changes in all societies all over the world. Uh, the thing is that... Uh, uh, to equip people for these and to, to make people ready for all these changes. They have to see through some of these things. And that's why it's so important to have uh, discussions like our discussion right now. So important to to tell people what's really going on in this world, because uh, all the media, you. Uh, all the media in the hands of the big corporations. If you wanna know what the media are gonna tell you tomorrow or day after tomorrow, just take a look at who owns the media, who are the main shareholders, and the main shareholders all over the world are always the same. It's always BlackRock, it's always Vanguard, it's always State Street and Fidelity, whose uh, uh, major shareholders are BlackRock and Vanguard. So it's always this digital financial complex that makes us believe that we're in a world that we're not in actually.
1: All right, thank you, Ernst, so much for joining me here on the Chantal Baker Show at Reality Check Radio. We're about to go for a short break, but before we get into it, just a reminder, if you do want to get in touch with your thoughts, drop us an email at inbox at or text us at 2057, that's 2057, to let us know what your thoughts are and what other topics you'd like us to hear deep dive into that the mainstream media aren't covering.
0: RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio.
1: Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, you're listening to The Chantal Baker Show and today we are talking all about the potential collapse of the petrodollar system, we're also talking about the BRICS agreement and what all of this means for the future of New Zealand's finances. And the case for concern really is this, one, crazy spending during COVID and the Ukraine war has caused massive inflation for the United States, two, Countries like China, Russia, etc. are leaving the US dollar and are being joined by lots of others, meaning there will be a glut in US dollar, leading to more inflation, possibly hyperinflation. Three, as we've just heard from author and journalist Ernst Wolff, this is leading us to a massive financial meltdown, and CBDCs will potentially be introduced as the answer. So are we seeing any of this happening? Is this crisis actually as bad as we think? This is an interesting report brought in this week around bank failures. Alistair, do you want to take us away?
0: Yeah, this appeared uh, on Zero Hedge, written by a guy called Martin Armstrong from armstrongeconomics.com. And he talks about the banking failures that are going on. And this last Monday saw the largest banking failure in the US since 2008 after the Bank First Republic went under making it the third death of a U.S bank this year. Regulators took possession of the bank on Monday and JP Morgan Chase uh, going to acquire a majority of the bank's assets and r- the remaining deposits worth around 92 billion dollars. And JP Morgan Chase coming to save the day is not really the greatest sign if we think about what Ernst was talking to you about. All of these small and mid-sized banks struggling with liquidity um, and falling over mean that the bigger banks like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and all of those come along and they suck them all up. And all it does is concentrate all the power into a handful of, of banks. And that erodes all of our freedoms, quite frankly, because then we don't have the choice and we have to just go along with what, what is being said and done by these banks.
1: And this is really the underlying theme of all of this. It's do we want a decentralised system where people have options or do do you want a centralised system where a limited amount of people are calling all of the shots for everybody? This is an interesting point as well. The CEO, Jamie Dimon, is a World Economic Forum member who fully supports the Great Reset. He wants the US to invoke eminent domain in order for the government to seize private property. These are his words, not mine. Diamond noted in his letter to shareholders that, and I quote, "...governments, businesses and non-governmental organisations may need to invoke eminent domain in order to get adequate investments fast enough for grid, solar, wind and pipeline initiatives." They need to provide energy affordably and reliably for today, as well as make the necessary investments to decarbonise for tomorrow, underscores the inextricable links between economic growth, energy security and climate change. We need to do more and we need to do so immediately. Isn't it interesting though with all these climate change advocates, and this has actually been a concern that other people have raised, is the future of a CBDC going to be tied to your carbon credit score? And banks are raising this question at the moment and it's a very interesting question. They talk about carbon credit yet they fly around on private jets but they're going to put different measures in place for everyday people than they are for themselves. And this comes down to the, the question and the and the concern around the centralisation of control because that gives them the power to be able to make decisions that affect them differently to the rest of the population.
0: I also think that what you just read out there, those words from Jamie Dimon, that's, that is really incredible. I mean, are we talking about capitalism here? I thought that that's, that's the system where we're in. But those words just seem like, what, you're going to take control of people's property just simply because you want to achieve some... Some sort of climate goals of your own—that doesn't sound like capitalism to me—and I think that's really, really um, dangerous words that I'm that I'm hearing from that guy. And that's what Ernst Wolf was talking about, right? He's talking about how when all of these these um, the, these banks get centralized down into just a handful, when they're all down um, into just about five or six different banks, we will have no choice but to accept what they bring to the table. And, you know, that brings me to that next story that we've got in our research here is Apple and Goldman Sachs debut savings account with a 4.15% annual yield. So this is what Ernst was talking about, the digital financial complex. Now, when it all comes down into just a handful of banks and then all these um, the digital companies like Apple joining up together with them to offer a banking solution. What's happened here is Apple have teamed up mm. with Goldman Sachs to offer via its wallet app a new savings account that offers annual high yields. This 4.15% is more than 10 times the national average. So it's kind of like when Amazon came into the market and they took over the all the book selling and everything by offering hugely cheap discounted books and then driving everybody out of the, the competition out and then you basically got no choice, right? That's what's happening here. And that's what Ernst is talking about, about how they become just a small group of banks controlling everything. We have no choice but to accept their CBDCs. We have no choice but to accept them talking about taking eminent domain over our property.
1: And they can say that it's capitalism, but to be fair, if you've got the government interfering in this, that doesn't become capitalism anymore. That then shifts. And so this is the one real concern. And we've seen this already in the States. They're prepared to bail out banks. China doesn't bail out banks in the same way. And they did have a cap on the maximum amount of deposit that they were paying out. Yet we saw recently in the Silicon Valley Bank that they were paying out well over that cap. So it further begs the question why will they bail out some? But they may not bail out others, or are they potentially going to bail out everyone? In which case, what will that mean for the future of of inflation? And BlackRock Chief Executive Larry Fink predicted on Friday, and this is interesting, that cash will keep trickling out of traditional bank accounts amidst the pressures. More and more deposits are leaving, and they're going into ETFs and into any form of cash and money market funds." noting that his firm has been benefiting. So people are trying to pull out of holding cash and putting it wherever else they can because they don't feel like it's safe anymore. But the concern is that if people aren't still using cash as much as they possibly can, it just further gives these banks opportunity to push towards a centralised digital system.
0: There's another situation too that is compounding this is is another story that was in the Epoch Times on Wednesday. And it was talking about how 14 million jobs are going to be slashed globally by 2027. That's only four years away. You know, we're we're not talking about very long. And this is all down to um, AI taking over a whole lot of jobs. The World Economic Forums warned that employment, the employment landscape will change drastically over the next five years amid increasingly widespread use of AI. Um, also, the transition to green energy, environmental, social, and social governance, ESG standards, um, will contribute to slower economic growth. According to the World Economic Forums, the Future of Jobs Report 2023, roughly 23% of jobs are expected to change by 2027 with around 69 million new jobs to be created and 83 million eliminated. Um, that's a 2% decrease of current employment globally.
1: And I would say looking at what AI is capable yeah. of, that's and a light look, estimate.
0: All of these things are contributing to the same thing, right? Um, we, we don't really know what's happening. We don't know what our future holds. And uh, so that's why we're having this conversation today, but it's also the reason a lot of them talk about the CBDCs is, you know, will that give us a little bit more confidence in our monetary systems?
1: Well, when they talk here about people going into unemployment, there's also a side conversation that's been happening around universal basic income. So what the governments have been talking about is essentially giving people money each week that's their universal basic income, and they can then earn above that. But it makes sure that everyone is equal, The issue I have with that is it encourages people not to work and not to strive for anything better because they're already going to get paid by the government. And as we've seen here in New Zealand ourselves, these social programs do not lift people out of poverty. They trap them in poverty. So my concern would be what is the poverty trap of the future going to look like if we are so reliant on AI and people are going to be more reliant on the government to sustain their basic needs? Are they going to then implement a universal basic income, or does that mean that people will just slide further into poverty and will be there'll be more deaths? What is going to be the long-term strategic outcome to this here in New Zealand?
0: Personally, I don't think that can work. I mean, you just need to read Atlas Shrugged. If you ever get the chance, go and read that. Ayn Rand talks about that kind of situation quite heavily in that book, and that is a heavy book. But who knows what happens with AI? Who knows what happens with the demise of the petrodollar? There's... Of, of the US dollar, there's absolutely no way that we can figure it out. But what we do know is that it has been identified. We know that a lot of countries are talking about CBDCs. Um, we, we know that they know that there's a problem because they are investigating CBDCs. 114 countries representing over 95% of global, global GDP are exploring CBDCs at the moment. Um, 11 countries have fully launched their own digital currency in China. For instance, the E Yuan has been used in more than 360 million transactions worth a hundred billion yuan. That's 13.9 billion US dollars wow. and more than 5.6 million merchants now accept that digital currency as payment. This is happening. It is coming. Um, I'm not sure whether they actually know, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, that we don't actually know, they don't actually know how it's all going to end up. But we all know that there is a massive rush to look into this, don't we?
1: Yeah, and you can understand why. You look at the sanctions that were put over Russia when the war war broke out. Now, the media has been incredibly one-sided when it comes to that war. So we're not seeing the other side of it. And the resulting... Oh, sorry. So we're not seeing the other side of that. And what has happened is Russia's had extreme sanctions launched against it, you can say rightly or wrongly. But what that means is that it now leads other countries to start investigating CBDCs as a, as a payment system that would avoid using the US dollar. And what that would mean is that come another war, the US couldn't easily slap sanctions on a country and prevent them from trading. So it would allow countries that want to go to war with others a lot of freedom to do so, and it would limit the control that the United States currently has to try and prevent wars where possible. Um, and I know some people will find that funny because the US has started many wars as well, but it's one of those things that does seem to hold the balance of power currently. If that shifts, what does the world safety look like?
0: Well, there are a lot of things, though, that CBDCs bring up or conjure in our minds about control, don't they? I mean, one of the things that they talk about all the time with CBDCs is how they will be programmable. That means that you could have an expiration date on your money. Um, if you're a beneficiary, you won't be able to buy cigarettes, for instance. And, you know, a lot of those things, the the kind of stories that they trot out to explain that away are given, um, and they sound perfectly reasonable. For instance, they talk a lot about how it's great for stopping money laundering and so on. But there is a control element to it which really doesn't sit right with a lot of people. One of the CBDCs that has been launched recently was the e-Naira in Nigeria. It was launched in October 2021. And what they did with that was that they 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 limited the atm cash withdrawals so they they put it out there alongside the usual cash system but nigerians didn't necessarily want to use it so to start trying to force them to use it they start started to limit the atm cash cash withdrawals to um, 100,000 nigerian naira which is about 225 us dollars a week and this has caused um, a whole lot of consternation amongst Nigerian people. And one of the outcomes of that was that it pushed a lot of the Nigerians towards Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, whenever they talk about how they want to eliminate fraud. <laughs> and meanwhile, the Pentagon has failed five audits in a row.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. It's like,
1: it's like they lose trillions of dollars but yet that's OK. But yet little old Joe blogs can't misspend five grand, you know, and I'm not saying condoning it or whatever. But what I am saying is I find it hilariously um, hypocritical of them that they worry so much about other spending when they can't even get their own under control.
0: Yeah. And, you know, all that money that's been sent to Ukraine and no one wants to do an audit of that either, do oh, they? Oh, they've
1: openly said we don't know where it's gone. Yeah. So, yeah, so you've got one of the most corrupt countries in the world being thrown billions of dollars at it. We don't know where it's gone, and then you look at what happened with FTX, and it partially looks like it could have been a massive money laundering scheme for the Democrats in the United States. So, again, partially, maybe, possibly, throwing out all the keywords in there. We don't know, but what you can say is there's some very sketchy dealings that seem to be going on involving billions and billions of dollars, and it raises concerns. Why are they wanting to now centralise the currency and make sure that taxpayers pay every single cent they can possibly squeeze out of them? Meanwhile, they're not—they're losing billions and billions of taxpayer money, and apparently that's absolutely fine.
0: Yeah, and and whenever people try and you touch on a really good point there, because whenever people try and talk about these things, suddenly we're not allowed to talk about them. We go back to that New York Times article. You know, apparently we just want to sound sophisticated if we want to talk about it. You you get ridiculed for it. Silly,
1: silly chicken. And, <laughs>
0: and, but um. There are times when the truth sort of peeks through, so to speak. And one of those instances was just recently there, a video came out of the, um, European central bank president, Christine Lagarde fell victim to a prank call in which, um, someone rang her up and pretended to be the Ukraine president, uh, Zelensky.
1: This is so good.
0: <laughs> it's hilarious. But what it does is it shows you what actually, what they're really thinking, because usually they'll get get up in front of the press conference and they'll tell you, oh, it's about money laundering and it's about, you know, making uh, payments a lot quicker and easier and all that, yada, yada, yada. But what about the, what what about the security, what about the privacy issues, Christine Lagarde? And of course, she wouldn't usually answer them, but in this one, in this prank call, she did talk about it, didn't she?
1: Oh, it is hilarious, and I just love that someone managed to do this. We're going to play a little clip of that for you right now. And uh, I know there are many protests in Europe uh, against uh, the electronic hero. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the reason?
5: You know, it's, it's the beauty of Europe. It has different uh, positions. If you ask in Northern Europe, for instance, uh, in the Netherlands, they're quite happy to see the euro coming. If mm. you ask a young German um, man, you'll say, yeah, fine. Mm. As I said, I don't want Meta, Google or Amazon to suddenly come up with a currency that would take over the sovereignty of Europe. I don't want a foreign currency to become the currency of trading within Europe. So we have to
2: be ready. No, the problem is they don't want to be controlled. Uh, They don't want to... uh...
5: Yeah, but you know what? You know what? (laughs) Now we have in Europe this threshold above 1,000 euros. You cannot pay cash. If you do, Mm -hmm. you are on the gray market. You take Mm -hmm. your risk. You get caught, you are fined, or you go in jail. But, you know, the, the, the digital euro is going to have a limited amount of control. There will be control, you're right. You're completely right. Mm
3: -hmm. We are
5: considering whether for very small amounts, you know, anything that is around 300, 400 euros, we could have a mechanism where there is zero control. But that could be dangerous. The terrorist attacks on France uh, back uh, 10 years ago, were entirely financed by those very small anonymous credit cards that you can recharge in total anonymity.
1: I mean... A, a side note to how absurd this conversation is, is also that this leads another cause, uh, the rising fear of what AI will be able to do with impersonating voices and getting details out of people, such as, you know, your daughter rings you and she needs your bank account for something or she needs a pin code for something. You'd give it to her because it's her family and it's urgent. But AI can now clone voices. And so it is actually concerning. And I do feel, you know, a little bit sorry for this lady, but genuinely thinking she was having a conversation with silly. Linsky but why do they not have any privacy measures or security measures in place to check this stuff?
0: Well in a way too I mean is this is privacy we talk about CBDCs as a loss of privacy for people and you know in that conversation they're talking about being able to uh, look at every transaction and so there is no privacy in that and we can all get very worried about it but look at what that conversation is as well that's She doesn't have privacy either. Do we need to start talking about saying goodbye to privacy full stop anyway?
1: I don't think anyone needs to ever say goodbye to privacy. I think you choose to say goodbye to it. Um, People throw away privacy in the name of convenience, and that's what we've been seeing recently in recent times. But it comes down to that thing of how much privacy are you willing to give up? Now, I know that there were huge protests, obviously, here in New Zealand around vaccine mandates because people were not happy to give up the privacy and the bodily autonomy of what they are putting in their body and why and they did not want to hand over that information to people. They thought it was private, and so there were massive protests about it. People said this is wrong. So I think that it really just depends on how far will a government push and what kind of pushback will they expect when they eventually do cross the line, because we see here that they're ready to cross the line. They're really willing and waiting to cross the line, but what will the people do when the government crosses it?
0: Well, what could we possibly do, though? Like, you remember what happened in... you, You bring up what happened in Wellington, well also what happened in canada when those truckers went to ottawa and they ended up getting their bank accounts seized and so on imagine with the cbdc how easy that would have been for them, what could we do to fight back in that situation?
1: Well, I do wonder if they had the power if they could do it because they do take very long, uh, very big cameras, very long lenses to every single protest and they photograph every single person's face multiple times. So they've documented every single person that is at a protest, they know. Um, and so it's scary, they're kind of enacting Chinese. Um, loosely, Chinese-based principles already. And then we saw that they brought over the Chinese police to try and monitor things. My question is, out of any country you'd want to emulate yourself after, why on earth would you pick China? Like, how is that the country where we're like, we need their advice? <laughs> they're, they're killing millions of people every year that they simply disagree with and yet we're meant to be taking their advice. It's wild to me. And I think the centralised digital currency is another concern. It's like This is, this is a style of banking that totalitarian dictators love why would we be trying to get remotely close to it
0: here's something even more scary i think about all the cbdc talk is that the imf recently came out with their own cbdc according to this story 99 percent of the global population has no idea what just happened um and it's going to be it's been created by the digital currency monetary authority um, according to this press release, the DCMA, the Digital Currency Monetary Authority, is a world leader in the advocacy of digital currency and monetary policy innovations for governments and central banks. Membership within the DCMA consists of sovereign states, central banks, commercial and retail banks, and other financial institutions. I've got two problems with this. Number one is that um, our governments represent us and uh, we haven't. If if our government has signed up to this, I'm not sure whether the New Zealand government is. But if they are, then why don't we know about this? The second thing is is that there was a follow up story to this, which is the IMF chief, Kristalina Georgieva, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, is warning that the world is heading towards a widespread adoption of central bank digital currencies without properly considering the risk factors involved. This is the head of the IMF. One of the leaders of the IMF no. saying that they we haven't actually properly considered all the risk factors. They don't even know where this is going.
1: <laughs> just let it happen, Alistair. Don't care about it. Let it happen. Nothing can go wrong. Welcome AI into your home.
0: <laughs> well, it's kind of a little bit of comfort as well. If, if they don't even know what they're doing, then maybe maybe we do do need to just embrace it.
1: Well, no, oh, gosh. I mean, this is this is the question that people always come down to, right? Because people will talk about the elites who run the world and people ask, well, who are the elites? And then you see things like the managing director of the IMF like just has no idea and she's concerned about how this is even going to play out. So it's, are there these big groups of elites or is it just a bunch of people that have ideas that are just rapidly able to push them through because everyone else is idiots and they just go along with it?
0: I I tend to think that maybe... maybe.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm genuinely, genuinely questioning because I see these things and there's meant to be all these nefarious people, but some of these people are so... I I just think some of it is almost happenstance where they're given the perfect opportunity at the perfect time. Someone comes up with a really terrible idea, but everyone jumps on it because they don't have any better ideas themselves. And so they go, go for it. That sounds about all right.
0: That's also another thing too, is that when cultures follow a certain trajectory. Books have been written about this. There's, there's no way that you can actually change the trajectory of a culture, of a system without a radical change. I'm talking about like a revolution or something. And this, that's what we're going through right now. This is a revolution, but there's, there's another rule to that law is that when you are able to change the trajectory of a society through a revolution, you, there's no way that you can predict the unforeseen circumstances that will arise from it. And that's kind of, to me, that's actually more scary and also more invigorating as well than the worry about our loss of privacy because there's no way that they, you know, this story here, right here um, about the IMF talking about how they don't know what the consequences are, that's, that kind of lays it bare. We, nobody knows. I think it's probably inevitable now So I guess maybe we do just have to embrace it. But then the question is, is how do we embrace it? How do we prepare ourselves for it as well? Because it's going to be massive upheaval. And I think that's what we're going to come back to after our break, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still feel pretty stubbornly that I don't want to go anywhere near it. But that's just me. We'll see what happens in time. All right, we're going to head to a quick break now and we just thank you all for joining us for this special segment all around what's happening with the financial system globally and here in New Zealand. If you want to see video content of some of these topics, head to operationpeople.com and sign up to our newsletter to get emailed our videos fresh in your inbox. This is the Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio.
0: RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio.
1: Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, you're listening to the Chantal Baker Show. Today we're talking about the demise of the US dollar, the rise of new financial systems and the implication of CBDCs on our life. So far we've heard from author and journalist Ernst Wolff from Germany and we've dived into the reasons that we're living in unprecedented times. But what is this all going to mean for New Zealand? One, how open are we to damage from the fallout from the US dollar's demise if it happens? And two... What is the latest status of New Zealand's own centralised bank digital currency?
0: And I think this is the point of this whole show that we're doing today, is that if you look through the New Zealand newspapers, if you look through our media organisation, all the all the websites and so on, you don't find anything about this. And I find it absolutely incredible because... At the core of it for us, if we're talking about it, let's forget about the rest of the world for the moment and let's think about where we are in New Zealand. We're in a big, big hole that they just dug over the last two to three years where they doubled our national debt. Our government just started spending money like it was it was crazy hour. You know, there was a story recently on the 10th of April, uh, an opinion piece by Paul Glass, who is the executive chairman for Devon Funds, and this was in the New Zealand Herald. And he pointed out a whole lot of home truths for us. What the previous New Zealand governments had done is driven down our national debt to 20% of our GDP. But then when the current Labour government came into power in 2017, they started spending money like nothing else. And during the COVID era, the COVID relief fund itself was just 70 was 70 billion dollars and that was spent on all sorts of things, not even COVID related things. And so now our national debt has basically doubled in that short time, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely wild and it's interesting how little has actually been spent on things that had anything to do with COVID. Where are our hospital beds? Where are our extra health staff? None of that happened, yet somehow we are massively, massively in debt. Consultants are now costing $1.2 billion per annum, and that is on top of the army of Wellington civil servants who have swelled by 15,000 since 2017. In 2022, our current account deficit blew out to $34 billion for the 12 months prior, As a comparison, during the global financial crisis, that blowout was just 15 billion. So, this is absolutely crazy what we're looking at here. But of course, under labour, they'll never admit that we're even in a crisis. They reject the premise of that question, and instead, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's a little one for anyone that had to um, <laughs> had to bear the brunt of ever hearing our on public. Um, <laughs> sorry, Alistair, your your laugh just threw me off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, 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 whenever I hear that phrase, I can't help but laugh. But you know, oh,
1: Hipkins, Hipkins had a gold one the other day. It wasn't, I reject the premise. It was something like, I don't know, someone else who says something. Chloe says something stupid the other day, like revisionist history when they're laying out what actually happened. I was like, these people are gold. I love it. She I love the little taglines. They come up to just gaslight people.
0: She uses that revisionist history one just as much as our Dan used the um, I reject the premise. <laughs> <laughs> um, you? But oh, you know, so rejecting the premise that that uh one of those points there core government spending was 76 billion per annum in 2017 today it is 130 billion these mm. people are incredible with their spending um and it's it's dug us a massive hole and so i don't see why we we shouldn't be talking about these things but the media is completely silent richard preble He wrote a story talking about this and he is of the opinion that there is a credit rating downgrade on the horizon if we're not careful.
1: That would be absolutely shocking, isn't it? And this is some of his words around this. A credit downgrade is a finance minister's nightmare. The financial impact is severe. It is an international vote of no confidence in the government's fiscal policies. New Zealand has a rating of AA+. Our rating has always been a confidence act. No one who spends more than they earn would have a good credit rating, yet New Zealand every year spends more on imports than we earn from our exports. Our AA rating is because we have stable politics, have never defaulted, and successive governments have been fiscally prudent. A rating downgrade would mean higher interest rates on everything, from government bonds to mortgages to car loans. The Kiwi is a floating currency. A rating downgrade would have an immediate effect on the currency. Everything we import would cost more, maybe a lot more. Um, Interesting words from Richard Preble.
0: Yeah, and look, that takes us, almost gives us a full circle back to what was said right at the beginning. You know, this is what Tucker Carlson was talking about on Fox, you know, about inflation. So there's a real lack of understanding around all of these issues that have been generated by this amazingly reckless government spending. And it makes you wonder, I remembered during the COVID madness, a lot of these decisions were being made. It seemed like they weren't even worried about being elected again. I don't know if you noticed that. Did you notice that?
1: Yeah, I did. They didn't seem to care. There was no there was no thought for the democratic process. There was no thought for people on both sides. It was only people on one side, and they really did not seem to worry about elections, which I found really bizarre.
0: And fiscal policy, you know, throwing money around willy-nilly like that. You know, we was we started talking about spending billions of dollars for things. And we're still a small country, aren't we? I was looking around thinking, why why are they talking like this? Do they not worry about the election that's gonna come up in just three years time? But of course, that leads us into also, you know, okay, so if we are in a little bit of strife, If we are open to all of this, because let's remember the New Zealand dollar is also not backed by gold. It's not backed by a commodity. We're floating around in the the currency universe, just like everybody else. So if the US dollar dives and everybody else crashes, we're going to suffer that as well. And so then, of course, the question is, is how do you get out of it? And a lot of people will talk to you about the CBDCs. We've we've investigated the CBDCs today. We've talked a lot about them. Um, so where are we with that? And according to the Reserve Bank, there's no decision yet on that.
1: Yeah, so the Reserve Bank of New Zealand said that it has not yet taken a decision, this was on April 29th, it had not yet taken a decision on a potential central bank digital currency but would continue to explore the option. The RBNZ had announced in September last year that it was seeking input from the public on the potential use of a CBDC. They got a lot of negative feedback on that because I watched a lot of the submissions, um, which is the digital form of the existing currency for people that still don't know after the two two hours of us talking about it. Several countries are exploring the use of CBDCs with the US Federal Reserve releasing a much-anticipated paper on the pros and cons of adopting a digital dollar earlier this year. The RBNZ said feedback from the public had helped affirm the importance of privacy and autonomy when it comes to a CBDC and that would be a focus of further policy work. Our view, this is quoting the CBDC um, Central Bank, our view is that CBDC and cash would be complementary rather than conflicting, the Central Bank said in a statement. Ian Wolford, the RBNZ's Director of Money and Cash, added that the central bank was particularly focused on progressing concrete steps to improve the resilience and efficiency in the cash system. Um, And they could be right. That could be their intention. But I have looked into the people that are also heading up the New Zealand um, Digital Forum and then Z- NZ Tech, which are people that also help to censor voices such as me online. And I don't particularly trust these people myself because they're involved in active censorship of voices online. And so these same voices, Mitchell Pham, that, invi- that are involved in the setup of NZ Tech and the suppression of open voices and the suppression of open speech here in New Zealand are the same voices that are now consulting when it comes to digital identity that the government needs to implement in order to have a digital currency. So it's a rather horrible little web when you start to look into all the people that are running these systems and I am concerned for what the future of New Zealand looks like if they do decide to adopt a centralised digital currency because I don't know about you but I trust this government less and less as time Goes on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% with what you're saying there, actually. Just, just now, before we came on air, I was looking through some emails and somebody had sent me a link that they'd got from their bank. Um, It was ANZ Bank, and ANZ was proudly announcing that they were taking part in a trial for CBDCs. I believe it was saying Australia. I didn't get to read through it completely. But my point is, is that they keep talking about how, oh, we're just exploring the options, We're, we're consulting at the moment, we haven't made any decisions, yet ANZ Bank is getting on and joining in with a trial. These are massive decisions which us as New Zealanders are just not getting any say in and I get the feeling that what's really happening and this is, this goes back to that idea about how the government was spending money as if they didn't have an election coming up. It almost does feel like it's de- deliberate and we see this more and more throughout this discussion about how the one way that they're going to implement them is not through democratic process. And by people asking for it, it's by pushing people into a corner where they've got no other choice but to take it. That's what worries me.
1: Yeah and it's certainly a valid question is when you had so many economists that were speaking out against what we were trying to implement here in New Zealand around our COVID measures was it the right decision? So we have now a very special guest. Welcome Simon Angelo. Thank you so much for joining us. Simon is the CEO and publisher at Wealth Morning which is an investment educational paper and you can sign up to it at wealthmorning.com. Simon thank you for joining me.
6: Thank you, Chantal. It's it's great to be on on your show and also congratulations on your, your recent wedding. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, look, just a quick disclaimer before we start. I'm only going to give listeners commentary today. Uh, no financial advice whatsoever. And if anybody's um, thinking to make a decision for their own situation, do go and get independent advice.
1: Awesome. Yep, that's absolutely fair enough and make sure that you're protected from your end as well legally. So can you introduce a little bit about your background and kind of the subject of finance?
6: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I bought my first shares as a Taranaki schoolboy at the age of 17. Uh, So I've had 30 years experience in the financial markets. And most recently, I'm at a trading desk most days, uh, buying stocks and shares and currencies around the world for our wholesale clients. And as you mentioned, I also provide commentary on the Wealth Morning uh, investment news site, which is at wealthmorning.com. I guess the main thing, Chantel, what I would say is what I've learned over investing, and this is certainly going to shape the conversation today, is there's just absolutely no certainties in the financial world. I mean, I guess maybe there's no certainties in life altogether. So as investors, uh, we only deal with probabilities.
1: We have got an interesting subject ahead of us, Simon, because we're looking at what is happening not only here in New Zealand, but around the world. And I'd like to begin with a big topic of conversation, which is the BRICS alignment. And as you know, we've got a battle between left and right, I would say, on this topic of conversation, because the left (laughs) seem relatively relaxed about where the financial markets are and the right seem deeply concerned. At the moment, over in the US, you've got a right-leaning news outlet like Fox suggesting that the US dollar is Losing its reserve currency status. Some of the conversation is quite alarming, suggesting it may lead to hyperinflation or a worldwide financial system collapse. How do you see the BRICS alignment? Do you think it is something that we should be deeply concerned about, or do you think this may kind of fly under the radar over the next five to ten years?
6: Yeah, great question. Uh, Big question. I mean, let's just back back a little bit, you mentioned that sort of war of disagreement between left and right media outlets.
1: Yes, yep. And
6: you also mentioned that there may be a component of gambling and investing. I mean, what I would say is we're trying to do so much research and use our experience that we're making bets we can win. And in terms of you know, that sort of divergence of opinion between the left and the right, and you, you mentioned Fox. I mean, I think listeners need to be very aware that when it comes to financial news, there's kind of two forces you see. You see a negativity bias, and you see loss aversion. And there are fear vampires out there who try and sell at news. And the problem most people have is most people are more worried about losing $1 than gaining $2. And I would just say to investors, let's concentrate on how you can navigate chaos and opportunity to make a gain rather than wondering about, worrying about what you have to lose. Now, to get back to your question, obviously the worry here is um, around the bricks and then. Supposedly not using the US dollar for, for trading or for foreign exchange reserves. So I guess this question, is, is your question here really around what's the status of the US dollar as the world's leading reserve currency currently?
1: Yeah, what's its status more as the petrodollar? How do you see the petrodollar playing out when BRICS is looking like it's a pretty strong alliance currently with the majority of oil nations aligning together and looking at trading under the Chinese Yuan?
6: Yeah, well, whenever you look at you know, trading and actually holding wealth, you've got to look at what am I holding my wealth in and how secure is that as a store of value? So, I mean, at the top of the tree, you look at gold and that's held its value since biblical times. And, you know, when there was an eruption in Pompeii thousands of years ago and they found some gold, beautiful gold bracelets, that gold has still held its original properties. So it's a great store of value, but it's not very good for trading or you know, sending around the world to buy things. It's not... It's not divisible or or portable. So then you look at, well, what's my next least worst option if I want to trade and I want to store value? And that comes down to currencies backed by governments. And then when you say, well, okay, what's the best currency backed by a government? You look at, well, how many taxpayers are there and what's the state of financial regulation in that country? Now, most countries have a tax base of about 25 to 40% of their GDP. And the US economy is 23 trillion and they have a tax uh, take there of about 26%. So that's kind of the largest taxpayer supported currency that we have. So I I disagree, I, I don't see the US dollar heading for the hills anytime soon. It's the largest economy, and it's got the most taxpayers to actually support and backstop their currency.
1: But is that only applicable as long as they have the alliance with other countries with a similarly high GDP? I mean, if more countries start dropping out and going towards BRICS, how will that upset the stability?
6: Well, if you look at current um, reserve situation, if you look at the reserve situation today, foreign exchange reserves, um, the US dollar is still 60% of those globally held reserves. I mean, that is down 10% since 99, when it was about 70%. But then you've got to ask the question, so if that's dropped 10% from the US dollar, where are people going to? And the next largest uh, pool of, of uh, reserve currency is the Euro, which has kind of come into its own over the past couple of decades. And that's 20% of global, global reserves. So arguably, you know, the, where the US has lost out, it's it's lost out to the Euro. Um, and then in terms of other reserve currencies, you know, if you've got the pound and the yen, they're about five percent. And in terms of the, the Chinese Yuan, it's it's still under three percent of, of global reserves, you know, fairly similar to the Canadian or or Australian dollar.
1: Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. And we'll go into this more as we go further along. But if this does happen, say say if By some reason, BRICS does manage to get enough of the global GDP that people start trading in more of the yuan. What would be the concern? Do you think there is a real genuine concern that a CBDC controlled by a central bank could come to fruition? Or do you think people would go back onto more of the independent cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin? Do you even see that as a possibility? Or do you think America will stay strong as the leading currency?
6: Uh, Well, if we just go back a little bit and, Say, for instance, you say to me, Simon, I've got some some Russian rubles and I want to pay you today in rubles because that's all I've got. And I would say to you, yep, Chantal, that's fine. I'll accept your rubles. But I mean, I sit at a trading desk every day and I want to get those rubles into a more stable and reliable currency as soon as I can. So I would take your rubles, but then I would probably convert them into US dollars or, or euros um, you know, as, as, as soon as I could. So I think, yeah, I mean, there is this talk of the bricks, but people will continue to make rational decisions about, about protecting their wealth.
1: Do you think that the risk, though, of a centralised digital currency is a severe risk to the outcome of the future of finance?
6: Uh, so let's take central bank digital currencies. I mean, what's happened there is a lot of people are, are using Bitcoin, and the problem with Bitcoin as a store of value is that it's, it's highly volatile. I mean, it's been $8,000, it's been, been $80,000. Uh, you know, just in the course of this year, there's been, there's been a big spread. So if you're a trader and, you know, you're lucky, you could make money on that volatility. But in terms of a store of value, it's, it's a disaster. And there's not a lot backing it apart from um, people speculating on, on becoming wealthy. I mean, when I was three years old, I had an imaginary friend and that was fun, but I don't want an imaginary currency.
1: Mm,
6: Absolutely. So if we look at uh, CBDC, um, I don't see an immediate risk there. That's, you know, somebody like the European Central Bank saying we want a digital version of the euro and we want to make that another means by which people can pay and also another uh, account where people can can hold it, so I, I just see that as complementary. Um, I, I think I think people will probably want their privacy, and for the most part, will stay in the banking system. But I think there is a place for for uh, CBDCs.
1: I can agree as long as you have a government that is relatively trustworthy. However, what we're seeing around the world is it's becoming increasingly there's been a lack of trust in our governments, and so my concern would be that it would head towards more of what we're seeing in China, where where it's used as more of a control technique over people with their finances. And I think an example of this is actually Australia is now looking at doing a centralized bank digital currency. They're looking at linking digital identity to their real me login or the equivalent of their real me login, and an independent reporter, Maria Z, has just been told that her bank is pulling her bank accounts from her because she's talked about controversial topics and it made mainstream news. And so now her bank is actually pulling her accounts. So is there not a very real threat from banks and from this particularly centralised bank that they could use that centralised digital currency to control populations in the future?
6: Yes, there is. And it comes down to the quality of your government but, I mean that risk is already there. We saw with the Canadian truckers' protest over the vaccine mandates in Canada that they were able to actually freeze bank accounts holding fundraising for those protests. And here in New Zealand, we have the Tax Administration Act, where uh, the you know the government can go into your bank account and make deductions for IRD or child support uh, payments without actually even getting a court order. So that risk is. Is already there. Um, I think what people actually need to do is think, well, how can I diversify away from some of these risks? I mean, the only free lunch in finance really is is diversification, and that comes down to actually using your money to buy some quality assets.
1: What would diversification look like, however, if they did do a big push towards a centralised bank digital currency and therefore you didn't have the freedom to buy what you wanted and they put it on towards a token system instead, which is what Rishi Sunak, the current UK Prime Minister, talked about a few years ago. Um, I believe it was to the G, either G7 or G20 and he talked about the – Um, money being programmable and used more like tokens where they would allocate where that money is spent. Do you not think that that would be a real concern with reducing freedom and what people could diversify and put their money into if it's channeled where the government wants it to go outside of where they would like their money to go? Or are you meaning they would need to diversify right now to try and prevent that from happening?
6: Well, I mean, a good investor should diversify anyway. But what you just mentioned there in terms of you know, you mentioned another step there of the government actually controlling and tracking how you spend your money. I mean, that's shocking. That's Orwellian. Um, We need to push back against that. And hopefully we would never see it in a in a Western
1: democracy. Yeah, well, I mean, we say, we say that we'd never like to see it, but I, unfortunately, if we've got the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, openly speaking about it and creating videos promoting that concept, it does leave a very real, very genuine, very sudden threat. And we do know that the financial systems typically go through quite a reboot every hundred years, and we're kind of coming up to that now. So it kind of leads me into the second part of this, which is what's going on with some of the bank failures. Now, we've just had a third bank, I believe go under, and JP Morgan is looking at buying them out. But what is your take on the current situation of the US banking system? Do you think that the Americans have enough money to bail out banks if they continue to go under due to inflation?
6: Yeah, well, let's put that in perspective. There's been three US banks that have got into trouble out of over 4,200 US banks. Yeah. Uh, There's also a federal uh, deposit insurance scheme, which covers... Uh, individual depositors up to 250,000 US dollars and Silicon Valley Bank which was the first to fall over was an outlier because it had a very large number of highly concentrated deposits that were beyond the insurance limit and with higher interest rates they'd been unable to lend out as much money as I guess they wanted to and had a lot of that money tied up in longer-run bonds so of course in the fractional banking system your bank only holds a small percentage of your actual money And when those uninsured depositors wanted their money back, it simply wasn't there. But I mean, I think one thing that reinforces my belief for now in the US dollar is the regulator acted very, very quickly. And within three days, over the weekend, those depositors had access to their money, full access to their money. But you compare that situation to China when four rural banks failed last year, Uh, those depositors could not get into their bank or access their money for months, and that had a terrible impact on them. And I think they had protests where there were up to a thousand protesters outside bank branches, and then they were um, taken to task under anti-protest laws. And I think there were some reports on Fox, I haven't verified them, that some of those protesters were beaten and arrested. So, um, yeah, I'd much rather have my money in the US bank.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise that they beat and arrest protesters in China. We've seen so much of it happening in the last few years and absolutely not condoning it. It's disgusting how they do treat people over there. But is there a concern even in how they structure the differences there. So China, I mean, kind of leaves the banks to try and fend for themselves, whereas the US are happy to bail out banks. And even then, I mean, the deposit was meant to be up to 250000 but then they said that people would get every bit of their money out, and so therefore they were bailed out to much more significant amounts. Do you think that is not precarious for their financial system if they are potentially willing to do that on a much larger scale?
6: Um, it is precarious if the ultimate tab is on the taxpayer. But I think in the cases I've seen, it appears most of it was not. Most of it was simply a reallocation of assets or the, or the sale of banks into, into larger banks. Um, I mean, there was the risk of contagion, but I, I don't see three out of 4,200 pretty well-regulated banks much of a risk at all. And I think if people are really looking for what's the main risk, it's actually inflation. You know, you had ten dollars last year, and it's only worth nine dollars this year. I think that's the kind of silent piece that you've you've really got to protect against
1: inflation. I mean, countries,
6: oh, yeah, yeah in, you get you on
1: Inflation is a really hot topic at the moment, and people are arguing about what caused the inflation and why does it keep growing. Um, from your point of view, what do you think has really driven this rise in inflation and the rapid rise of inflation?
6: Oh, well, look, they've been trying to blame it on on cyclones and supply chains and imports, and I think that's just bits and pieces around the edge. I mean, the ultimate cause of it is the government uh, regulates and produces the money supply, and as a result of quite overbearing lockdowns, in my view, um, they really ramped up the money supply such that interest rates fell to about 2%, and then, of course, people rushed in and bought it, and then you, you know, bought houses, and you had a housing bubble, and uh, it was all quite mad, really. So we're really just paying off that piper from, from COVID in terms of inflation. And if you want to maintain a strong currency that people trust, you can't have it inflating away. You've really got to bring inflation back down to a level that people don't notice every day, which is about 3%. And, uh, I mean, in that respect, the U.S. Federal Reserve's done a reasonable job. They've got it down to 6%. Um, they were, next year, they're projected to get it just over 3%. But, I mean, if you want to look at a poster child for inflation, look at Argentina, where it's currently running at 100%. Mm.
1: And
6: uh, residents in Argentina are restricted in selling that currency. I think they can only get about $200 uh, U.S. Dollars a day. Um, so that's when you have a, a currency that's not trusted and people don't want to use it unless they have to.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. What are some of the steps it that you think? It is terrifying and yeah. I
6: mean, it's quite interesting. I the Argentinian friend. I said, oh, what does that look like? And he said, oh, you, know, you go into a hardware store like, like MITER 10, for instance, and there's 4,000 items on the shelf, but none of them has a price.
1: So said, wow. Like,
6: How do you know how much it is? He said, well, you've got to take it up to the cashier and get it scanned because the prices are changing on a regular basis. So it's quite a hard way to live your life and budget, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and they say that um, the uh, part of that is due to Argentina's strong social, um, strong socialist tendencies as well, and they, you know, they just can't seem to manage their money properly, which is fascinating, and I think something that New Zealand does need to be really aware of. What are some of the direct steps that you think our government could take here in New Zealand to try and prevent this ever increasing rise of inflation?
6: Well, the the tool they have is a pretty blunt one, which is to increase interest rates. And, we've, we, you know, we've seen the OCR increasing and it will likely increase again on, on the 24th of May. And unfortunately, that really hits people hard who have who have mortgages. But uh, that's kind of the main tool that we've got. But, I mean, if you go back a little bit, what you really need in government is leaders willing to take a bit more risk. And what we saw during COVID is, yes, there were risks and it was a, a horrible situation that they weren't prepared to take any risks at all. And they were so risk adverse. You know, they shut the country down and they had MIQ. And uh, well, you went to Wellington to, to protest. Yep. And Had they taken a little bit of risk, you know, we wouldn't be in this in this same predicament because I mean, everybody knows, you know, in your own life, if you're not going to take a risk, you won't get anywhere. And uh, certainly if you don't take risks with investing, you're, you're not going to prosper.
1: Yeah and it seemed but, interesting uh, we've reading.: got Politicians
6: now who just have no background in taking risks, they've, they've been academics or they've had political careers, and I would just encourage people to look for in their leaders someone who's got some experience with risk-taking, because it's important.
1: It's that, but it's, a bit, it's a bit more of a background of financial literacy as well because I spoke to a number of different economists during that time and read a number of their papers here, based here in New Zealand. Um, one of them is Martin Lally and one of them is I think it's John Gibson. They wrote some really good papers around the state of our economy and the predictions and they were that, talking to them. They were saying that a number of economists um, thought that the lockdown strategy was the, absolutely terrible because long term we could not survive it very well and I think we're really seeing the repercussions of that now. It seems like these people that were sounding the alarms back then have been proven right and I mean a prime example is we can look to Sweden and their COVID outcomes and how their economies managed to bounce back and they seem to have been doing really well for themselves. Um, That moves us. Let's jump away from that for a second, because I think we could keep talking on that for probably a good couple of hours if we wanted to. Do you think, I mean, what you mentioned earlier, the taxpayers making money, paying tax, that's what's helping to keep the US economy strong. How do you see AI playing into that?
6: Uh, We have looked at investing in AI in our business, Uh, At the moment, I see the artificial part of that. I don't see the intelligence part yet. Um, Maybe that's just being my main experience has been chat GBT. So for me, I think it's watch the space, but I don't see huge disruption right now. And I mean, as an investor, I'm primarily dealing with things that are going to happen in the next six to 12 months. So I'm kind of more interested in flying cars and electric Vertical takeoff and landing, that sort of thing. <laughs> Bit of Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, don't we love it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating conversation. Is it going to take away jobs or is it going to create a vast amount more, of op- more opportunities just in very different areas and allow us to advance far quicker? And AI still does need human help largely, uh, for now anyway, but I guess that's a futuristic question, um, which is... Interesting. When we talk about CBDCs, just before we move on to this completely, the IMF are launching their own CBDC. Do you still have the same uh, limited amount of concern for the IMF using their CBDC, or do you think that that could be more problematic given their history of using the IMF within countries that are really struggling and what that could mean in terms of them taking over control of specific countries and areas?
6: Well, I'd want to know more. I mean, the whole thing with if New Zealand was to introduce a CBDC, um, the whole benefit of it would be it's it's a, just another version of the New Zealand dollar and provides you another option to pay for things or hold money. My question would be what currency are the IMF using? Are they trying to create a global currency that the whole world could use? And uh, that doesn't have a good history.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And when we talk about the New Zealand debt overall, how would you categorise the position that we're currently in?
6: Oh, okay, so in terms of New Zealand government debt, uh, we're not we're not in too bad a place when you look around the world. I mean it will it will go up as we continue to pay for some of the COVID outfall. But the last time I looked, probably last financial year, um, total New Zealand government debt was 21% of GDP. Um, Australia was about 40, and the US is 95. Uh, the danger poster child for public debt Italy, which is Italy, which is 135%. So, I mean, my, my bigger concern is actually New Zealand household debt. That's not the debt the government um, holds, that's, that's the debt that, that people hold, and mostly in mortgages on houses yeah and that in New Zealand is about ninety five percent. So that's where that pain point is. But there's a whole conversation as to how we got there. It's because houses are just so damn expensive in this country because we've kind of got this banana mentality, you know build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone.
1: <laughs> I mean i sold I sold property for many years, and particularly in investing as well. And the one thing that I always found was the younger people wanted to spend the maximum of their budget. They just yep. they wanted the maximum they could for the and you know they'd buy the biggest place for the cheapest amount of money which means more of a low quality property um, but that was what they wanted to do and so it was very hard trying to coach them out of that mindset and talk to them about what would make more of a practical investment when they really just were trying to spend the absolute maximum. And so you can see as inflation further skyrockets, it's those people, those kind of introductory investors that are really going to be the ones that miss out. And obviously, first home buyers trying to buy back into the market, it's going to get difficult. Um, Unless, of course, they've got some really decent sized deposits and decent incomes, in which case they may be able to snap up a steal that someone else is going to have to drop off just due to the unaffordability.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So when you were working with those people, did you sort of get a glimpse of the fact that how that might affect their future, just kind of maxing out the mortgage?
1: Oh, absolutely. So we had we, we would work with very, um, I'd say, intensive spreadsheets and calculate every single component and then break that down over a 20-year cycle. And so it would include um, growth and then ev- everything that you need to. But it was interesting because, they, even if they could see the numbers, they would still try and push over what they could and you'd get a call from the broker and the broker's trying to get them higher and you're trying to convince them to go a little bit lower and so you're in this constant battle between just trying to keep people living within their means and I think that that is the real problem when it comes to more of the cost of living. People just need to try and do more to live within their means and what that looks like. is Maybe there is moving further out of a big city, moving to a smaller city, moving somewhere that you can still have a decent job but it's going to cost you a third of the price to live there because I see a lot of people that say, oh, it's very expensive to live in this one major city in this one decent area, and of course it's going to be. So I think that there needs to be a little bit of adjustment to that. And, I mean, when my parents bought their first property in Auckland, it was this absolutely rundown, dishevelled place that had weevils or something like that, and it was awful, you know, all second-hand furniture, and I think that our expectation of lifestyle now is so much higher than what previous generations have had, that now it is significantly more difficult for people to get into the market.
6: Yeah, and I think what you've just said resonates with me, because um, in the portfolios we manage, we, we do see a lot of high-net-worth people. And you might think, oh, they're all, they're all in Auckland or, or Wellington. And actually, no, we're seeing a lot of people from rural New Zealand where they've had more affordable homes and then by definition, they've got a lot more money to invest in, in stocks and shares and, and build some real passive income and financial independence.
1: Yeah, it's just make, making decisions that are really difficult short term or for a few years and but then looking at long term, what would that actually lead to? What do you think people should look to? I don't know if you can give this advice. Obviously, you've made your disclaimer that you're not giving personal advice. But do you, can you give any kind of commentary around um, if, if you would say gold would be better at the moment or Bitcoin or anything like that? Are you allowed to touch on that topic at all or do you have to stay more generalised?
6: Uh, well, I can't talk about anybody else's situation. I don't know, but I can tell you what I do.
1: Okay, <laughs> perfect. Um, I mean, I guess
6: just also just on the subject of New Zealand's debt, I mean, one thing I would add, and this affects what everybody should do, is our biggest risk is actually New Zealand super. So that, mm. cost, that cost the country 18 billion, almost 18 billion last year. And our total tax take is only about 83 billion across every sort of tax. So that's kind of 22% of all taxes is going to pay super. Wow. And yeah, that situation, if if more and more people are turning 65 and suddenly you've got a $20 billion bill next year, then it's going to be a harder and harder conversation to keep having. And Italy's already there. You know, they've got a much older population and that's why they've got, you know, so much public debt because they're having to fund, you know, a really expensive... Uh, pension system, and they can get aggressive, as we've seen in France, and in only wanting to increase the pension age a couple of years, and people were taken to the streets. So I think, yeah, more and more Kiwis should look to have some financial independence as they, as they go through life and, uh, and build that. And as you said, um, you know, actually look at your situation. Do you really want to spend 30 years of your life uh, investing in nothing more than a mortgage?
1: Absolutely. And that's an interesting topic when it comes to um, aid the ageing out of society because it's something I've spoken about numerous times that we are not having enough children. People are not going to have enough people coming into the workforce to then replace the ageing society. There's an imbalance. France already has it. Now they're protesting burning buildings. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many buildings you burn, you've still got got a deficit there that is not going to be filled unless people do start having children or immigration opens up more and you've got more people going into working jobs. So it's interesting watching it play out. And I think that oh, governments... you've
6: raised, Yeah, you've raised such a perceptive comment there. So our fertility rate per woman in New Zealand is 1.6. Mm. And we actually need... Well, you've just got married, Chantal. We need you to have 2.1 uh, children.
1: <laughs> Talking to Jacob about it.
6: <laughs> yeah, to keep, to just, just to keep the population going and mm. to be able to fund the super system that we have. And you mentioned immigration, and that's not an ideal solution because it takes some time for the immigrants to be productive and when they come they don't bring a hospital bed or a bird space or a house all that infrastructure has to has to be built so uh, really the silver bullet is, is to have more children uh, you don't don't worry about uh, asking what a woman is just just ask uh, women to get into viable families and uh, those <laughs> families to
1: have more kids. Well yeah, I mean this it's an easy solution to such a big problem that we're facing and, and, and the same goes for the health industry as well. We're, we're going to see more and more problems because an ageing society has more issues and it's more expensive to operate and so unfortunately if we don't have enough young able-bodied people coming in to fill that, it's going to c- further create a divide and yeah, it's just the beginning but I think that that's a topic that t- politicians seem to avoid. They seem to love saying that we're overpopulated but especially in the West That's nothing um, but an outright lie for our particular countries. All right, Simon, thank you so much for giving us your insight. Is there any last words that you would love to leave people with today?
6: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess the lessons we've got from today's conversation is, you know, you need to invest in something more productive than your home and your mortgage. Um, Personally, for me, I can't speak for others, but it's been stocks and shares. And you need to find something that can insulate you against inflation. So in our portfolios last year, um, you know, even though a lot of positions did badly, we did have the sense to go into commodities, in particular copper, copper miners. And I think those share prices were up about 40% because inflation actually meant that you know there was such demand for copper that they could they could trade through that. Um, you do need to take risks to get ahead. You need to look for leaders who I think are experienced with with risk. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think lastly, Chantelle, I just commend you on, on that basis. I mean, you've taken risks in your own career and now you've got this fantastic show that uh, I think spreading a good message that's not really available anywhere else.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that and I've really enjoyed talking to you. All right, Simon, thank you so much for your input around CBDCs, what's happening with BRICS and what is the future of New Zealand's financial freedom? I leave you with this one closing thought. What does it mean to be financially free? Do you want your money delegated to you? Do you want it handed down to you on a token that you're allowed to use? Do you want the government being able to dictate to you if you're allowed to buy something at a flea market, if you're allowed to go to a garage sale? Do you want someone dictating to you if you can hand that person who's struggling five or ten dollars down the street? How does digital currency really work in a modern society? Let's look at the countries that have tried it. Are the people happy with it? Do they trust their governments more or less now that this is in place? So I hope you go out this weekend and you put your money into whatever it is that you want to because you have the financial freedom right now to do so. Whether that's investing in a stock you've wanted to for a while, whether you're buying your first home, a second home, a 12th home, whether or not you're just buying some lollies at the local dairy, you make a financially free choice this weekend because you can. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio.
0: RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio.